Steve Newman is teaching tonight on uh, booze, blues, and Christian taboos. And uh, he probably spent more time thinking up that title and preparing for this. So I will uh, turn it over to Steve and allow him to explain exactly what he meant by that. The uh, subject tonight is one that's kind of sensitive, and, and uh, my aim is not to step on anybody's toes. Uh, but what I mean by Christian taboos are different practices that different Christian groups have, have outlawed that the Scripture doesn't outlaw. And the, the list could go on and on, but it includes such things as drinking alcohol, dancing, using tobacco, mixed bathing, meaning girls and boys swimming in the same swimming pool, some groups outlaw, uh, using makeup, some Christian groups outlaw drinking Coca-Cola, there are a variety of things that, that different groups have, have outlawed for various reasons. Now, to get us involved, all emotionally involved in it, what I want to do is start out as give us three different situations. And I want you to indicate to me, with either a, we'll go back to the old Roman method, the thumbs up or the thumbs down, to indicate to me what you think. If, uh, if the, Behavior is acceptable and appropriate, raise your thumb, and if it's unacceptable and inappropriate, lower it, and if you can't make up your mind, do it Don did, and go like that. Situation number one, what would you think of a Christian evangelist who goes to cocktail parties and drinks cocktails with the people as he tries to mix with them and build relationships and, and hopefully have openings to... Witness to them about Christ. Okay, what would you think about about a youth leader who's about to set out in the backpack and he just realizes that he didn't get enough bread and there was communion at church recently so he goes back and he finds the leftover communion bread, puts it in the bag and sticks it in somebody's backpack and they take off with it. Acceptable or not acceptable? Third situation... What did you think of a pastor who went to a, was invited to a, a wedding, a rather large wedding, and he brought with him as a, as a gift for the wedding reception afterwards 60 cases of wine? Well, we have mixed reactions, but at least we have a little involvement. Let's look at, at Mark chapter 2 to begin with. Because in all three of these situations, the names were changed, but they're all biblical situations. Mark chapter 3, starting at verse 15. And it came about that when he was reclining at table in his house, and many tax gatherers and sinners were dining with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many of them, and they were following him. And when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with the sinners and tax gatherers, they began saying to his disciples, Why is he eating and drinking with tax gatherers and sinners? And hearing this, Jesus said to them, It is not those who are healthy who need a physician, but those who are sick. I had not come to call the righteous, but sinners. 
So the evangelist in illustration number one was the Lord Jesus. Mark chapter 2, verses 15 to 17. And now this isn't exactly a youth leader, but look in chapter 2 of Mark, verse 23. And it came about that he was passing through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and his disciples began to make their way along, uh, along while picking the heads of grain. And the Pharisees were saying to him, See here, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and became hungry, he and his companions, how he entered into the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he gave it also to those who were with him. And he was saying to them, The Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Consequently, the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. And Jesus is approving David's actions here, obviously. He says he did what was really not fitting with the law, but David saw that the law was really intended to meet man's needs, not restrict it, and saw that in this situation uh, it was appropriate to take this bread as he was, was uh, running from Saul. Situation number three, turn to John chapter 2, starting at verse 1. And on the third day there was a wedding in Cana of Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus also was invited and his disciples to the wedding. And when the wine gave out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what have I to do with you? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Whatever he, he says to you, do it. Now there were six stone water pots set there for the Jewish custom of purification, containing 20 or 30 gallons each. And six times 20 is 120 to 130 gallons they filled, they contained. Jesus said to them, Fill the water pots with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the head waiter. And they took it to him. When the head waiter tasted the water which had become wine, and did not know where it came from, uh, but the servants who had drawn the water knew. And the head, head waiter called the bridegroom and said to him, Every man serves the good wine first, and when men have drunk freely, then that which is poor, when their discrimination is, is less clear. You have kept the good wine until now. Now we see that Jesus, uh, you know, whatever, uh, however you take this, he made... 120 to 180 gallons of wine at the wedding feast. Now the point, my point tonight is not to, to get you to adopt a certain uh, standards of behavior for yourself, but if you looked around, you saw that on each instance, some thumbs were up and some were down. And the real issue we want to address tonight is how do we treat one another over convictions that differ? And therefore we want to look at Romans chapter 14, and it's interesting to me that, that the majority of thumbs were down in the two situations that, that were used to describe what the Lord Jesus himself did. Now you may, might say in our, in our culture things might, might be somewhat different or 
whatnot, but the action itself was was clear enough as to what he did. And I think what we need to start with when we talk about things like Christian taboos or questionable things is that our standard is always the scriptures. And though we may be free to adopt for ourselves any kind of rules that, that we want, uh, sets of standards that we think are wisest given the culture, given our own personalities, etc., we're not free to impose on other people standards that we have adopted for ourselves that are beyond what Scripture teaches. Jesus chided the Pharisees a number of times for that very thing, for the traditions of men which they were equating with the Word of God and which they were even at times using to stand in the way of the Word of God. Mark chapter 7 is a good example of that. Well, in the first part of Romans 14, verses 1 to 12, Paul says that we are not to judge one another. And that's his basic theme there. Let's read the first few verses, first of all. Paul says, Now accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. One man has faith that he may eat all things, but he who is weak eats vegetables only. Let not him who eats regard with contempt him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. Who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. The situation in Rome was that you had some Christians who came out of a Jewish background and some who came out of a Gentile background. For those who came out of a Jewish background, they had problems with eating certain types of food, catfish and pork and, and all those kinds of things. And Paul says, starts out by saying, accept the one who is weak in faith, but not for the purpose of passing judgment on his opinions. In other words, he says, when you accept somebody into your fellowship, don't say, hey, here's Joe. He thinks it's a sin to chew tobacco. Can you prove to us from Scripture, Joe, that it's a sin to chew tobacco? I bet you can't do that. Paul says, don't do that kind of thing. Don't accept somebody in for the purpose of passing judgment in his opinions. The one who is weak in faith. And notice in verse 2, the one who is weak in faith is the one who has extra scruples, who feels he cannot do things which the Scriptures themselves do not condemn. The one who has faith, the one who is strong in the faith, is the one who realizes he can eat all things. He doesn't have to keep pork out of his diet, keep from eating and drinking certain foods and drinks. But he's not to pass judgment on this man. And then in verse 3, he says a word to both of them. Let not him who eats regard with contempt who does, him who does not eat, and let not him who does not eat judge him who eats, for God has accepted him. In other words, to the man who does not have these certain convictions, I can't dance as a Christian, for instance, don't let him despise the person who feels, well, as a Christian, he really can't do that thing. They'll let him say, well, gee, you're unspiritual if you don't do this. If you feel you can't 
participate in this kind of activity. Don't despise and look down upon somebody's spiritual condition because he has uh, certain convictions. Particularly, Paul says, if his convictions uh, are unenlightened to a certain degree. Here, the convictions of the Jewish believers obviously were unenlightened. They didn't realize the freedom that they had in Christ to eat all kinds of food. Paul says, even though they're unenlightened, don't despise this person. Don't look down upon him and think that he's unspiritual or a second-class Christian because he doesn't have this freedom. And then conversely, Paul says, let not him who does not eat judge him who eats. The person who feels a certain conviction, the scriptures don't forbid a certain action, but he feels, well, that's really not right for us as Christians. Let this person not judge the person who does that practice, who feels he has the freedom in Christ to participate in that kind of activity. Don't judge that person. Don't set yourself up as judge. And then in verse 4 he says, Who are you to judge the servant of another? Suppose that I hired somebody to come do the yard work in my house. And I said to him, I want you to mow the lawn, rake up all the grass clippings, put them in bags, set them out in the street for the garbage man, weed all of the flower beds, various other things, prune the trees, trim the hedges. But one thing I don't want you to do is to edge the, the grass. Because I just love to use my little edger and go out and edge all the grass. So I don't want you to do that. But suppose that you're my next door neighbor and I give instructions to my yard man and then I go away for the day. And you are one who's particularly finicky about making sure that the yard is edged. You make sure every time you mow it that your yard is edged. And you watch this guy uh, taking care of my yard and you notice, well, he's not edging yet. I just bet he's not going to do it. I bet he's one of those lazy types. He tries to get away with second best. He doesn't do everything. And you watch all day long and the suspicions kind of build up and the, the irritation. At the end of the day, you see him load up all of his equipment into his pickup and he starts to drive off and you run out and say, wait a minute, Steve is my good friend and I want you to edge his lawn. It's not right to mow and do this, all this other stuff and not do a complete job. Well, Paul says, if you do that kind of thing, you're really out of place. Because I'm his master, not you. I'm the one who's made the arrangements with him. It's me he's serving and not you. Who are you to go and judge the servant of another? I might have particular things that I've told him to do. In the same way, he says, we are not servants of one another in the sense that we're Lord over one another. We're supposed to serve one another, but we're not Lord over one another. God is the master. He says, who are you to judge the servant of another? To his own master he stands or falls. And notice, he says, and stand he will, for the Lord is able to make him stand. He might not live up to your expectations and your standards. He might have what you think are hang-ups and restrictions. He may be uptight in your terms. But God is able to make him stand. He will make him stand in the judgment day. Or maybe you think he has all sorts of license and does things which a Christian ought not to do. But Paul says, don't judge. Because God will make him stand in the day of judgment. 
If God's concerned about certain actions, he'll let them know in his time. He'll weed those things out of his life if they really are important, or they really are a problem for him. Paul says in verse 5, One man regards one day above another. In other words, he keeps the Sabbath. He keeps the holy days. Another regards every day alike. In other words, he says the Sabbath and all the holy days are part of the Old Testament law. For us as Christians, they're gone. They're all foreshadowings of what would take place in Christ. The new era of the gospel. And therefore, every day is holy. In the same way, every day is alike and I, I can do anything I want to in Sunday. I don't have to have certain restrictions of my activity. Paul says, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. And of course, with the parallel of verse 2, the implication is that the man who is strong in faith is the man who realizes that all days are the same. Paul says in Colossians 2 that, that we're not to let anybody judge us or push us into Sabbath worship because that's all something that's passed away in the age of the gospel. He says, let each man be fully convinced in his own mind. He who observes the day observes it for the Lord. He who eats does so for the Lord, for he gives thanks to God. And he who eats not, for the Lord he does not eat and gives thanks to God. What Paul is saying here in verses 5 and 6 is it's really a secondary issue whether you do or whether you don't. Your spirituality is not based on whether you do these things or don't do these things. The important thing is the motive. One man eats pork, and he thanks God. God, thank you for this food which you have given us. We praise your name. It acknowledges a gift from you. And so he eats to the glory of God. Another man says, God, I know that you have, have uh, given certain limitations what we can eat, therefore I'm going to pass up this pork in your name, because I want to be holy. Paul says he's doing it to the glory and honor of God. And what he's saying is that the motive really is more important. Now, in many Christian circles, somebody's spirituality is based or is uh, judged oftentimes in whether he does or doesn't do certain activity, whether he follows a certain set of do's and don'ts which are not really in the Bible. You know, a good Christian boy shouldn't smoke or chew or go with girls to do. You know, and you have other kinds of things that different different groups have. What Paul is saying here is, is uh, for many of these things, uh, they're matters of, of secondary importance. Whether you do them or don't do them doesn't really determine your spirituality. Why do you exercise the freedoms you do? Is it because you feel that these are things that God has given you? They're good, you feel free, and you do, you, uh, do these activities to the glory of God? Well, good. But if, on the other hand, your motive is to flaunt your freedom, to show that you are a liberated Christian, or you do it because of social pressure, well, you don't really feel it's right, but all the other Christians around are doing it. That's wrong, Paul says. Your motive should be to serve the Lord. Or if you're not doing certain things, why are you refraining from them? Is it because, again, of social pressure? You're afraid of what some... Some people, some Christians might say, if you go ahead and do this thing, or is it just out of tradition because this is the way you've been brought up and 
just always do it this way and you don't really know why, but everybody else does it, so you might as well. Well, this is inadequate too. If you refrain from it, refrain from it to God's glory. So Paul is saying that the, the motive is really more important than, than the action in terms of, of many of these questionable things. And then he explains himself, explains why it is that the motive is more important than the, these actions. For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. For if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again, that he might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. In other words, our motive as Christians, all of us, should be to serve the Lord. Whether we live or we die, we do it unto the Lord. We ought to ask, ask ourselves about all that we do. Are we doing it unto the Lord or are we doing it because... I feel this is what I want to do, and I'm going to do it no matter what everybody, anybody else thinks. If that's our motivation, it's wrong. If our desire is to please him, then it's right. Now let me add, parenthetically, that some people use this kind of thinking as a, a billy club over other Christians' heads. You know, can you, in all honesty, tell me that your sniffing snuff is being done to the glory of God. And can you tell me that you're going to horse races is being done to the glory of God? And so they kind of put pressure, you know, and the other person says, well, gee, I never thought of it that way. Maybe it's not. But we also ought to ask to that person, can you tell me that your chewing gum is done to the glory of God? And you're watching a golf match on TV is done to the glory of God. All, all of us should do all that we do to the glory of God, whether it's sniffing snuff or chewing gum. Personally, I don't like to sniff snuff, but when I chew gum, I, it's part of what I do to the glory of God. I, I thank him for it and enjoy it as a, as a gift that he, he gives. The uh, great Baptist preacher of the last century, C.H. Spurgeon, who preached to, had a congregation of about 10 to 15,000 people in London and his church was the, the uh, Metropolitan Tabernacle, for a time in his life smoked cigars. And this bothered some people, and so they came to him and said, Mr. Spurgeon, how can you, as a Christian man, as a preacher, smoke cigars? He says, well, I smoke them to the glory of God. And... This is what we should do in all, uh, all of our activities. Now, I'm not trying to get us to go, all go out and buy cigars. I didn't just buy stock in some uh, Cuban cigar company. But it just illustrates that whatever we do, we should be doing to, to God's glory. Verse 10, Paul says, But you, why do you judge your brother? Or you again, why do you regard your brother as contempt? For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of God. God's going to judge. God's going to take account of whether a person's actions or restrictions are right. He says it goes both ways. Accept one another, he says in verse 1. Don't push your convictions off on the other person and think that the most spiritual thing is whether or not he agrees with your convictions on these activities. Let God be the judge. 
but love and accept one another. For as it is written, As I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, and every tongue shall give praise to God. So then, each one of us shall give account of himself to God. We're going to have to give account for what we do, but it's to God, it's not to one another as our judges. And therefore we should refrain from judging and despising one another. Let me just summarize then verses 1 to 12, Paul's main points. One is to accept one another, don't judge somebody, because you don't think this action is right. If the scripture says it's wrong, then go to him. You have a responsibility. Go to him and say, brother, you're transgressing what the scripture teaches here. The scripture doesn't forbid it. You can't do that. Now, you can go and say, as your brother, I don't think it's wise for you to do this activity. It's not helpful to you and it's hurtful to some people. And therefore, my advice is to restrain, refrain from doing it. But we cannot set ourselves up as judges and say, you must uh, agree with me. You must hold the same opinion that I hold. We have to give the other person freedom to, to disagree. The same way, he says, don't despise the person who doesn't feel that he has the freedoms that you feel that you have. The second thing we notice is that the motive is really more important than the action. So don't make a big deal about whether you have the freedom or whether you have the restrictions. That's not the most important thing. The most important thing is the motive behind your actions. And thirdly, we do notice that in this context, Paul says it's the man who has faith who has the fewer restrictions, who knows that he has certain freedoms in the, in the gospel. Now, he may not exercise them, as we'll see, but he knows in, the, in Christ he has the freedom to do these things which the Scripture does not outlaw. Then verses 13 to the end of the chapter, verse 23, Paul shifts gears. He says, okay, we've, you, we have these freedoms... But now I want to address those of you who are strong, who have these freedoms about how you exercise them. Therefore, let us not judge one another anymore, but rather determine this, not to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. He says we have freedoms in Christ, but we must use them in such a way as not to put an obstacle or stumbling block in a brother's way. Now, to know what that means, we need to, to be able to practice that, we need to know what it means to put an obstacle or a stumbling block in a brother's way. Verses 14 and 15 help clear up that question. Paul says, I know and am convinced in the Lord Jesus that nothing is unclean in itself, but to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. In other words, it's, it's fine for us as Christians to eat pork. But if you don't really realize this and believe it, to you, eating pork is a sin. It's unclean. You shouldn't do it. Verse 15, For if because of food your brother is hurt, you are no longer walking according to love. Do not destroy with your food him for whom Christ died. So by putting a, a stumbling block in a brother's way, Paul is contemplating our destroying that brother by our action. 1 Corinthians 8 clears up the matter in case you have any question. He says, he says there, 
Putting a stumbling block in a brother's way means, for instance, that you think, as a Christian, you have the freedom to to uh, drink an alcoholic beverage. This other guy doesn't think he does because of his background and, and upbringing and whatnot. He, he feels it'd really be wrong for him as a Christian to, to drink. He sees you doing it. He thinks, well, you know, he's doing it and he's supposed to be spiritual, so, well, I guess I will. And so he goes ahead and does it, but he really doesn't have a free conscience. He's really not clear. And so you are being a stumbling block by leading that brother to transgress his conscience. Notice that Paul says here, do not destroy your brother. He's not saying do not annoy your brother. Paul is not saying here that a stumbling block is, uh, putting a stumbling block is that somebody gets uptight or offended by what you do. A sense of being annoyed. And what's helpful to us here, I think, is the, is the example of Jesus Christ, again. In that Mark 2 passage we saw, the Pharisees were very annoyed at what Jesus did. The religious people. And often within evangelicalism in America in the 20th century, the pressure is, you should pattern yourself after the religious people what will or won't annoy them. And if you annoy any religious people, then you're out of line. But Jesus was willing to annoy the religious people for the sake of reaching out to the non-Christians, to the tax collectors and the sinners. They got uptight. They didn't like it. They said bad things about him. They called him a wine-bibber and a glutton. Said he kept bad company. So Paul is not saying here that, that, you're, that being a stumbling block means you annoy somebody. And many issues... You're going to annoy somebody no matter what you do. For instance, in some churches, people have a feeling that the King James Bible is the only one that's inspired. You know, if it's good enough for Paul, it's good enough for us, that kind of thing. And there's a pressure there that, you know, we really have to use this. And any other version is not to be trusted. Because you go in that congregation, you feel that pressure. That you have to use the King James Bible. And if you don't, then many people are going to be annoyed with you and offended. But you might have a problem because you might bring a friend along who's brought up in a different context. He has a New American Standard or some other Bible. And he sees you giving up your modern translation Bible and adopting a King James, and he might be annoyed. So in some situations, whether you do or whether you don't, you're going to annoy some people. So that alone is not, the, is not a, uh, an adequate criterion to base our actions on, whether we annoy people. Jesus was willing to annoy people. He didn't go out annoying people just to annoy them. There's always a purpose. But sometimes their actions might annoy people. But Paul is, say, is not saying here that, that we can't have, uh, we can't annoy them. He says just don't destroy them. Verse 16 says, therefore, do not let what is for you a good thing, your freedom to practice this thing, be spoken of as an evil, and in the context it would be because you are, are becoming a stumbling block. Don't let your freedom to go to a movie, for instance, be spoken of as an evil thing because here are two or three other Christians who feel that it's wrong for Christians to go to movies. They see you do it, and yet 
they start doing it, but they really don't feel feel right about it. And their spiritual lives are hindered because they're led to sin against their conscience by doing it. He says, don't let what is a good thing for you, what you feel free to do, be spoken of as evil because it's destroying people. For the kingdom of God is not eating and drinking, but righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. In other words, whether we do or we don't do these things is not really all that important. So don't hang on to it like a privilege that you have to be able to exercise this freedom. Because you who are strong must be willing to give up your freedoms, to forego them for the sake of, of brothers who are weaker in these areas. Verse 18, for he who in this way serves Christ in the way of giving up his freedom is acceptable to God and is approved by men. So then let us pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. And this verse, verse 19, Paul takes one step further. He says, not only don't put a stumbling block in another's way, but he says, do the things that help build peace and build up the body. Now let's suppose within one church you have two people, Bill and Bob, and Bill thinks that it's wrong for Christians to play cards. Maybe because his father is a gambler and gam gamble all the family's money away, or whatever the reasons, he thinks it's wrong for Christians to play cards. Bob, on the other hand, feels that as a Christian, uh, it's not wrong. The scriptures don't forbid card playing. He feels free to, to do it. Probably wouldn't, wouldn't go uh, gamble away hundreds of dollars in Las Vegas, but he's, he feels that old maid is, and a few other things are really okay for us, for Christians. Now ideally, if both of these believers are exercising maturity according to what Paul is saying here, Bill would say, well I can't do it. I don't think it's right for me and I'm not going to do it. But you can go ahead if you feel that's okay for you. I'm not going to judge you. And Bob would then say, well, I respect your convictions. I don't think they're right, but I respect them. And I'm not going to bug you and look down upon you and despise you. But suppose that Bill is not so mature. He says, well, I don't care what anybody says. I don't think it's right to play cards. Christians shouldn't do this. It just makes me emotionally upset to see Christians do it. And Bob is wrong when he does it. He shouldn't do it. Bob, because he's seeking to, to pursue that, he's pursuing the things which make for peace, according to verse 19, at this point then should be willing to forego his liberty. Because he wants to, to, to build bridges. He wants to build up the body of Christ. But there are some times when Bob will say, well, Bill, that's too bad. I'm sorry that you're bugged by it and been out of shape. I'm going to go ahead and do it in this case. Suppose that Sam, his next-door neighbor, is not a Christian, invites Bob and his wife over to play bridge. And Bob says, well, good. I've been praying about an opportunity to reach out and develop a relationship with him, and I want to, want to be able to reach him with the message of Christ. Well, Bill may have hang-ups about this, but following the example of Jesus who did things that the Pharisees didn't like so that he could reach out to the non-Christian world. He says, well, I'm going to go ahead and do it. So at some times, he uses his freedom not because he wants to push his freedom and demand his rights, 
But sometimes there are are things which are more important. There are higher callings. But he does say, let us pursue the things which make for peace in the building up of one another. And then in verses 20 to 23, he, he summarizes and explains things in relation to the man who is weak in faith. Do not tear down the work of God for the sake of food. All things indeed are clean, but they are evil for the man who eats and gives offense. Now the word gives offense in this verse is the same word in verse 13, a stumbling block. And it could be that the word is a little bit difficult to translate. Uh, this phrase is. It could be that Paul's that what Paul's saying is all things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats in such a way that he becomes a stumbling block for his brother. Myself, I think that we should probably retranslate this this verse, uh, and I feel fits in better with, the, with uh, what Paul is saying in, in the Greek language he's using to translate this way. All things indeed are clean, but they're evil for the man who eats through a stumbling block. In other words, he sees somebody else eating his piece of pork, he doesn't really feel right about it, but he goes ahead and does it. He says, Paul says, I'm convinced that eating pork is fine, you can do it, but if your conscience is, is hurt by it, it's not clear, then for you, it's a bad thing. It's a sin to transgress your conscience in that way. Verse 21, it is good not to eat meat or to drink wine or to do anything by which your brother stumbles. I don't know if any of you have the King James version with you tonight, but it adds two other things. By which your brother stumbles, or is offended, or is made weak. And uh, all of the modern translations that I've been able to find at least omit those last two phrases, is offended or is made weak, because they're not in the, the uh, most ancient manuscripts that we have. So Paul's again just saying, if your brother stumbles in the sense that he sees you practice something which he doesn't feel he should do, and by your example, he goes ahead and does it, then it's wrong and he is sinned. And you have made him stumble by exercising your freedom in that way in front of him. Verse 22, the faith which you have, have as your own conviction before God. In other words, don't pattern yourself after what somebody else does. Don't do it just because less does it. Rather, do it because you feel it's right. Happy is he who does not condemn himself in what he approves. In other words, happy is the person who doesn't say, well, gee, Les does it, so I'll go ahead and do it. But, gee, I really don't feel right about it. So you condemn yourself, and for you it is wrong. Because, verse 23, he who doubts is condemned if he eats, because his eating is not from faith. And whatever is not from faith is sin. And let me just add at this point another parenthesis. If you've been brought up for instance, to think that playing cards is wrong. And Christians shouldn't do it. Even Rook. It's supposed to be a Christian card game. If that's been your upbringing, you may, through your study of Scripture, come to conclude, well, Scriptures don't forbid. It's okay to play. I can do it. Uh, I can do it, and I'll be right in doing it. After coming to that conclusion, you may still have some emotional twitches the first few times you do it. 
And that's not really doubt in the way Paul is saying. It's just kind of, that's just a natural result of kind of being shaken out of your your habits and you feel a, a kind of emotional intensity going into it. So if you're really convinced in your mind, yes, this really is right, no matter what my emotions are saying, then it's not a matter of doubt. I heard uh, one story. I'll close with this, and we'll have some time for some interaction over this issue. I heard one story that illustrates the problem that we often have, that often exists when different Christians have different convictions. And the uh, person who told me this said it was a true story, uh, and I'll leave it to you whether it was or not, but at least it illustrates the point. According to the story, there was a, a group of Christians in a town in Germany. And because of their upbringing and, and pietism and their uh, restrictions, they felt that it was wrong for Christians to use makeup. Now, they look around at the most of you ladies don't, don't hold that conviction. But they felt it was wrong for a Christian to use makeup. It was a sin to do so. And they had some American missionaries come over to help them because they're, they were a small church and they're, uh, the great majority of people in their land were an area were, were unbelievers. And the thing that bothered them is that the American missionaries, uh, the women, all wore makeup. And it really got to these German Christians. So one day they gathered around in, in the person's home to discuss and pray about this matter. And as they discussed it, they just became emotional and, and it really struck them. You know, they were, were grieved over the worldliness of these American Christians. And pretty soon, one by one, the tears started pouring down their eyes and down their cheeks, out over their cigars and right into their beer. <laughs> and they were grieved over the worldliness of these American Christians. Well, I think it, it illustrates that, that for what one group of people may obviously be a sin, for another group, very obviously it isn't. They hadn't even thought about it that way. And something else may be a sin, obviously. And what Paul is saying in Romans 14 is that we need to accept one another, not judge one another. If something is a sin, we need to find it in Scripture and go to a person. But if Scripture doesn't outlaw it, we need to allow a person the freedom to, to practice what what the uh, what Scripture doesn't outlaw. Now, there may be times, uh, there may be things that, that out of wisdom, because we're trying to pursue peace, because we're trying to fit into the culture in which we live, that we don't do certain things. Uh, I make it a habit not to smoke cigars during my sermons. Just, uh, I don't think it would be profitable. So there are certain things that we may not do because uh, because of other considerations. But what Scripture doesn't forbid, Paul's saying, we can't forbid. We can't add on the traditions of men. And we need to accept one another, not judge and despise people who have differing set of convictions. Well, let's have some time to interact. Roland.